about two weeks, Pastor Darren's been preaching on eagles and the lessons we can learn from eagles. And uh, so my message this morning is on snakes. I, uh, I hope you don't think that we're a weird church. It just happened to be that way. I didn't plan that. So the passage this morning comes from uh, Numbers chapter 21. That's going to be our main scripture for this morning. Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 to 9. I'll read it for you now. Then the Israelites journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes amongst the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses, Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, before we dive into this passage head first, I just want to go back and look a bit at the context. Um, we need to consider when this event took place, as well as what were the circumstances leading up to it. So around 2000 BC, God promised a man named Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. That's in Genesis chapter 17. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac, of course, um, had a son named Jacob. And later on, God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and uh, they eventually became a great nation, a large nation, a group of 12 tribes. Then out of that uh, giant people group, they were dwelling at that time in the land of Egypt and eventually um, became slaves in Egypt. But God raised up the prophet Moses who performed mighty signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And we probably know the story of the 10 plagues and how God parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could walk across on dry ground. And then when the Egyptian army went to pursue the Israelites, the waters closed over and wiped out the whole Egyptian army. So in our passage this morning, the Israelites have already been journeying through the wilderness for um, quite a few years. Uh, it actually ended up taking them 40 years from uh, the land of Egypt all the way through uh, to the land of Canaan, which is this northern part that you see here, and then Egypt is here. So it's actually quite a short journey. The reason it took 40 years is, as most of us would know, the Israelites rebelled against God. They, um, the, the spies went in to spy out the land and they came back and they said, yes, the land indeed is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land of abundance. Um, there's wonderful fruit there and, and flowing water, but the people of the land are giants. They're big people and they live in fortified cities. And so the spies came back with a bad report and discouraged the people. And then the people grumbled against God and Moses because uh, they didn't have confidence that God could actually perform his word. Even though God had shown himself miraculously in Egypt in rescuing them from the land of Egypt, they, they still chose to doubt God's promises. So by the time we get to our passage this morning in Numbers 21, they'd actually reached the southern border of, of Canaan. They'd already had the spies sent into the land. Um, and at this stage, they were actually heading south. Um, so they're actually heading the opposite direction to the land of Canaan, which is why the passage says that the people became discouraged or they, um, they lacked patience. 
it's a, it's a bit of the same in the Hebrew. So, as they were going along, um, in Numbers chapter 21, verse 5, it says, The people spoke against God and against Moses and said to them, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bre- bed, bread. Sorry. You see, um, the impatience of the Israelites caused them to uh, grumble against God and Moses. The two things I get from this is that the people of Israel were ungrateful and they were unbelieving. Instead of praising God for the past victories they had in Egypt and remembering all the wonderful things God had done for them, they decided to grumble against the Lord's servant and to grumble against God and to doubt that God was actually able to bring them into the land. Now, their statement's just not true. It's, it's, it's a lie. They say that they have no food and no water, but all through their journey in the wilderness, they never once lacked food. God provided a heavenly substance that was kind of like bread called manna. Uh, and the Israelites would gather that manna each day and they had enough to eat and no one was hungry, no one starved. And as for water, we know that Moses took the rod and he hit a, a rock uh, near Mount Horeb and water poured out and it was enough water not only to water these hundreds of thousands of Israelites but also all of their livestock as well. So the real reason the Israelites were claiming to have no food and water was because they were mad at God. They were mad because they wanted their own way and they wanted to enter the promised land on their own terms. Um, They'd forgotten that God was the one who had rescued them from the life of slavery and that even the clothing, even their shoes didn't wear out on their journey because God sustained them. This is kind of us sometimes when we go through wilderness experiences. You know, just this week, well, this weekend, I should say, on Friday, I had a really bad day at work and then... Uh, on Saturday, I went to write my sermon, and I just was not in a good headspace. I just couldn't get my head around the passage. I couldn't get my, my hand to the computer. And I was getting really discouraged. And it's funny, because I was thinking, you know, whenever I prepare a sermon, God always seems to give me a circumstance that week that matches in line with what I'm reading. Uh, so this morning, I was walking, and I was praying, and I was thanking God that I hadn't been bitten by a snake. But... When I was walking and praying, I actually nearly stepped on a brown snake. <laughs> it was one meter away from it, me. It, it slithered, like it looked like it was going to attack. It flared at me, and then it slithered off. So my assumption is God said, no, you're not allowed to bite my servant. <laughs> that was sort of my conclusion, but praise God I didn't get bitten. But the, the experience I did have this, this weekend was one of a wilderness experience. I didn't want to preach this morning. I didn't want to see people. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to crawl up in bed and sit on my phone and just ignore the world. And, and this is how we are sometimes. We get so caught up in our circumstances that we forget that we have a loving God. We forget that we have a God that's present, a God that's able to deliver. And so instead of feeling sorry for myself, um, what I ended up doing is I went to the prayer meeting last night, as we've been having these prayer meetings throughout the whole week, uh, because I realized you know, that's the place where I'm going to get back on fire for God. And as I was there, funnily enough, we're sitting at the back of this couple, and they are the most encouraging couple I've ever come across. They were just so lovely. They were like, oh, it's so wonderful you're here. And they were telling me how great the Lord's been to them and so on. And as I'm in this meeting, God, God was reminding me that I hadn't been thankful. I hadn't been thankful for the past victories. I hadn't been thankful for the wonderful things and the provision He's made in my life. And so as I was in this meeting, I began to thank God. I began to praise God. And I began to remember passages of Scripture, like it says that, He's given us the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And so when I praised God, that spirit of heaviness broke off of me and I'm 
full of joy and full of energy and strength. I woke up at 2 o'clock this morning and I was ready to preach the Word of God. <laughs> so it's been really good. Now maybe this week you've had a bit of a bad week too. Maybe you're in a bit of a wilderness experience. You know, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, it, we're commanded to pray continually, to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So I'd like to just pause now um, so that we can just have a time of short thanksgiving with one another. If you don't mind just turning to someone near you, um, even if you're not a believer, I'm sure there's something you could still be thankful to God for. Um, if you can just turn to one another and give thanks for something, maybe you're thankful for your health, maybe you're thankful that you have a grandchild on the way, or maybe um, you're just thankful for your salvation, that God has forgiven your sins. Let's just spend a little bit of time turning to one another and encouraging one another and thanking the Lord. It's good to thank the Lord. It's good to remember that we have a good God, a powerful God, a mighty God, a God who is there to deliver, a God who saves, the same God who rescued the Israelites out of slavery. It's awesome. So moving along, the, another lesson we can learn from these Israelites is one of the reasons they complained a lot is because they'd forgotten their vocation. You see, God didn't just rescue the Israelites out of Egypt so that they could live a cushiony sort of life. You see, the Israelites were focused on their own pleasure. It's not that they didn't have food and water. They wanted better food. They wanted fancier food, fancier drinks. They wanted parties. They wanted blocks of land that they could possess and own. They didn't want to be a people group stuck in the middle of the wilderness, even though God was providing for them. They were focused on their pleasure instead of focused on the glory of God. You see, God rescued the Israelites so that they could be a witness to the whole earth. In Isaiah 43, verse 10, it says of Israel, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. Israel was the nation chosen by God to shine for him, to be that light. You see, even, even when uh, God spoke through Moses to the Pharaoh, um, he refers to Israel as God's son. This beautiful picture that they were 
part of God's family. They were an extension of God. They were a witness to the whole earth. And so we make this mistake too today. We think about what we're focusing on. We focus on our wealth. We focus on our happiness. We focus on our own flourishing. And we forget that we're also ambassadors for Christ. We're also there to shine for the Lord. So the question you need to ask yourselves this morning is, who are you living for? Are you living for God or are you living for your own pleasures? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, it says that Jesus died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. He bought us with his blood. He purchased us. He ransomed us. Continuing on in our story, in verse 6, it says, in response to these grumbling Israelites, the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. Now as a side note, I've changed one word in this verse. Uh, Most versions, like your New King James and your ESV, will say fiery serpents. I changed it to poisonous serpents or poisonous snakes. Um, The word in Hebrew is probably better to be said fiery, but it's probably in reference to the pain experienced when the poisonous snakes bit them. That's why they were referred to as fiery snakes, because there was inflammation and pain in, in the bite area. So, but the, the general concept and the reason why the NIV translates it as poisonous is because it's probably just a little bit easier for us to understand. Now, what do we learn from this verse? Uh, we learn that God is actually the one who sent snakes. This isn't passive judgment. This is active judgment. God is the one who sent snakes as a form of judgment to kill Israelites. Now, some of you this morning might struggle with this idea of a God that actively judges people. And uh, I, I sort of hear all the time from Christians, you know, when they, when they go to preach the gospel, they're always preaching about the love of God. You know, God loves you. God has a wonderful plan for your life. And these things are really true, but... God is love is one verse describing God. There, there are many verses describing God in the Bible. And if we're going to have a complete picture of God, we need to remember that God is also a righteous judge. It says in Psalm 7 verse 11, God is a righteous judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. See, this is not the first time that God has poured out his wrath on the people in judgment. If we remember back earlier in Genesis, it was God who flooded the earth because humans were evil. They were acting evil. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And hence why God sent the flood, but rescued Noah and his family. Noah found grace in his sight. Now some of you might be saying to yourselves, yes, I understand God did those sorts of things in the Old Testament, but now that Jesus has come, God's not like that anymore. God would never kill people now that Jesus has died on the cross. And this is a popular belief today. Somehow that God has changed, he's become um, a little bit kinder because of the coming of Jesus. So I just want to show you from the New Testament, this is the same God of the Old Testament. This is the, this is the God that we worship. In Acts chapter 12, we read that King Herod, who was a king set up by the Romans because the Romans were ruling over Israel in the first century, King Herod was um, giving an oration to the people in Acts chapter 12, verse 21. It says, On a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, The voice of a God and not a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, 
because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, this is um, recorded also in secular history books. Um, a man named Josephus wrote about events that happened in the first century. He was not a Christian. Um, he was a Jewish man who wrote uh, about this event which took place in AD 44. And he wrote that after five days of intense pain in his belly, King Herod died. He died abruptly. And Luke wrote that in Acts that it was an angel of God who put him to death because he did not give glory to God when the people began worshipping him. Now some of you might say, well, Herod's not a Christian, so I understand how God might judge non-Christians, but he would never, ever kill a Christian, or a churchgoer, I should say. That way I don't get into too much trouble. But in Acts chapter 5, we know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They came to the apostle Peter with a sum of money, and they lied to Peter in their donation and said, this is the sum of money for which we sold our property. And both Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead in the presence of Peter after Peter rebuked them and says, you've not lied to men, but you've lied to God. So for lying to the Holy Spirit, these two church members were killed by God. In another place we can see God actively judging Christians is in the case of Corinthians, uh, the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, we read that around the time of the Lord's Supper, around the time of communion, uh, they were taking communion in a selfish way, in a way that wasn't considering their brothers and sisters in Christ. They were, they were getting drunk and they were becoming gluttonous, and they weren't giving honor to the Lord Jesus. And as a result, um, Paul, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, He who eats and drinks the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and some of you have died. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So some, Christ, some churchgoers or Christians in the Corinthian church were, were suffering with sickness and weakness in their body, and some had even died as a result of taking communion in, in, in an unworthy manner, in a selfish manner. Now, why do I bring these things up? Well, firstly, I want you to see that God hasn't changed. He's the same God that we revere and honor. But I want you to see the right picture of God. God's not like this warm, gentlemanly Santa Claus Claus living in the clouds who's just there to give us presents when we ask him for presents. You know, we have this weird Western warped view of God as this sort of teddy bear figure. And yes, he's a loving Heavenly Father, but he is still the God, the King of the universe, the Creator, the one who gives life and the one who has the right to take away life. You see, you're not entitled to another breath this morning. You're not entitled to another heartbeat. That's given to you as a gift by God. You know, we, we, we assume that, oh, it's my right to live to the age of 90 or 100 or whatever. It's my right to see my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. It's my right to own a home. It's my right. It's my right. It's my right. Well, no. God is the owner of the universe. He owns you. He owns all of creation because he created it. And he put life on this earth so that we could be in communion, in relationship with him, in fellowship with him. There's another false teaching that's popular today. It says that we should reinterpret all the passages of the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus in his earthly ministry. Now, they would say that the reason why this verse couldn't be true is because they couldn't imagine Jesus doing such an event. Um, maybe they would quote something like John 3:17: God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And to that I say, amen, totally. 
God sent Jesus into the world so that we might be saved, so that whoever believes in him would be forgiven of their sins, would have a relationship with God. That is the purpose for why Jesus came into the earth. But we need to also remember that this Jesus is coming back again, and he's coming back again as judge. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus shared the parable of the minas. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but his servants were entrusted with 10 minas, and they were like coins, and they were expected to do the right thing with Jesus' goods when he went away on a journey. But it says that they sent a letter after him, stating that they rejected his rulership over them. And the the parable ends with Jesus saying, Bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus in a parable that he shared, talking about the kingdom of God and him as king. And we know that in the second coming, the Lord Jesus is going to judge the nations. This is the Jesus that said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And it was in context of Israel's God, the Father of the Old Testament. So I want to go back to our passage. The Creator and Judge send snakes into the camp of Israel to bite them. But I want you to see that wherever there is judgment, God always provides mercy. So we think about the time of the flood. God provided an ark for the saving of Noah and his household. We think of even Pharaoh. Pharaoh was given multiple chances to let the children of Israel go. You know, had the first sign and wonder, I think, or first plague was simply Moses taking his staff and throwing it on the ground and it became a snake. It didn't do any harm to the Egyptians. You know, the water turning to blood, these sorts of things. Like, Pharaoh could have let the Israelites go, but instead he hardened his heart against God to the point that he led his army against them through the Red Sea until the waters closed over and drowned the whole Egyptian army. Now, we need to ask one more question here. Is every natural disaster, sickness, um, every time you get bitten by a snake, is that God? (laughs) That's a good question to ask. The answer is not no, um, but probably maybe. But let's see what Jesus says. So Jesus says in John chapter 9, the disciples have come across a man born blind. And the disciples asked Jesus, Teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So the man wasn't blind because he'd done something wrong. And sometimes there are just natural things that take place. Like if I'm clumsy and I trip off this stage, I'm not going to turn around and blame God because I'm clumsy. Like there are things that happen um, in the natural world. There's another time in Luke chapter 13, Jesus is talking about an event that took place when a tower fell over and killed 18 people. The Tower of Siloam fell. And he said, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the others who dwelt in Jerusalem? I say to you, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So what we learn from these statements of Jesus is bad things sometimes happen, and it's not always, it's definitely not always God doing them. Um, But at the same time, we need to consider, as followers of, of Christ, it says in Hebrews that as many as he loves, he rebukes and chastens. And so be zealous and repent. Like sometimes bad circumstances do happen in our lives because he wants to draw us near to himself. So if we now look at the last scene in our story in Numbers chapter 21, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was if a serpent bit anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And again, this is just beautiful. God always provides a way of escape. He provides a way of mercy for the guilty. Now, it's interesting to note that the Israelites had requested that God remove the snakes 
But God didn't actually answer that request. Instead, he got uh, Moses to set up a bronze serpent on a pole. So even though they were still being bitten by snakes, if they did get bitten, they could look to this pole, and whoever looked to it would be healed. They'd, be, they'd live. They wouldn't die of the venomous snake poison. It reminded me of a verse in Isaiah 45, verse 22, which said, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There's salvation and no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. You see, there was no special power in the bronze snake. The power to heal was found in God, not the image that was erected. 600 years later in Israel's history, um, we actually read about this bronze serpent again. And it's in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4. It's talking about the reign of King Hezekiah 600 years later. So 2 Kings chapter 18. It says, Hezekiah removed all the high places and broke the sacred pillars. He cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel had made offerings to it, calling it Neshutan. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Just so you know, that word um, Neshtan or Neshutan, how you pronounce it, it simply means the great snake. So the people were found making offerings to this idol 600 years after this event. One of the reasons I want to bring this up is because the events we're reading in the Bible are true stories. They're not parables. They're not legends. We see 600 years later in Israel's history, this thing is reappearing. And later on, we're going to see that the Lord Jesus himself um, talks about this event as if it was a real event that had actually happened. Um, now, this, this kind of reverence for charms and healings and, and, and Christian charms is, is even rampant in our day. Uh, when I visited the Philippines, there were paintings of Jesus and Mary and statues of Mary all throughout the Philippines. And you'd see them lighting incense to these statues and lighting incense to um, paintings of, of Jesus, even though the image in the painting was a white guy who looked nothing like a Jew. And they would make prayers before them. Now, artwork and statues can be a wonderful tool to remind us of the stories in the Bible. Like, there's a reason why I use images when I preach. It's, it's a visual aid to help us um, better grasp and understand uh, the content. But I don't really care if, you know, there's a discovery tomorrow that they found the, the cup that Jesus drank wine from at the Lord's Supper. You know, I didn't... I didn't particularly care when I was going through Europe and I was going through um, the big cathedrals and they claimed that they had the original crown of thorns which was on Jesus' head during the crucifixion. And the reason I didn't care is because I know Him. I know the Lord Jesus. That's far greater than His clothing. It's far greater than His cup or the crown of thorns that He wore. I know the Lord Jesus. And so they shouldn't have been worshipping this snake. They shouldn't have been making offerings to it. They should have been in relationship with their God, the Creator, who was not to be imaged because He made all things and He's distinct from His creation. Another area where Christians tend to set up images is in their obsession with crosses. And don't get me wrong this morning, I love little cross necklaces. I think they can be a great reminder of who we serve. I think they can be a great witnessing tool when people ask them about us. Um, but the one thing I don't like is I don't like the obsession with using crosses and exorcisms. You see it in movies sometimes. You know, they're holding a cross on some demon-possessed child or they find a haunted house and they're waving the cross around and, you know, squirting holy water to try to cleanse the house. That's going to do nothing. Demons don't care at all about an execution tool. You know, if Jesus was killed with a handgun, would you hold a handgun and wave it around a house? The fact is, 
they are scared to death, literally, of the Lord Jesus himself. And if you know the Lord Jesus, you can be set free of any evil oppression. You don't need to trust in a, a, a store-bought cross. You can trust in the Lord Jesus himself, and he'll set you free of anything that you're facing. Now, in the screen behind me, I just thought I'd mention, because I thought it would be cool, I saw an ambulance the other day, and I was reminded that ambulances still have this image of a snake on a pole. Now, that's not the snake from the Bible. At least they claim it's not the snake from the Bible. Uh, there's two different kinds, but one of them, or both of them, are coming from Greek mythology. This particular symbol on this ambulance is called the rod of Asclepius. I hope I pronounced that right. Asclepius is the god of medicine and son of Apollo in Greek mythology. But prior to Greek mythology, the Jews had already set this precedence, unfortunately, of worshipping a snake on a pole for healing. And so we see this carrying on into pagan religions also. But I do think, I wonder if in the mind of God, he's left this as a reminder to all of us that, hey, this is a real event. There was a bronze serpent on a pole so that whoever looked upon that bronze serpent was healed of the snake bite. So for me, it's a really encouraging thing every time I see that snake. Now, Jesus interprets this, this story in John chapter 3 when he's explaining to Nicodemus what must a man do to enter the kingdom of God. He says to Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3 verse 14, As Moses lift up, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, the bronze serpent pointed to the future when 1,300 years later, God would send Jesus to die on a cross so that humanity could be healed from the poison of sin. It's an interesting thing that Jesus is comparing himself with a serpent on a pole. Have you ever really thought about that? It's a bit of a strange imagery. Like, why is Jesus being compared with the negative thing in the story? Why wasn't it just a pole, like an empty pole or something like that? Well, those serpents all through the Bible represent the curse on humanity. They represent sin all the way from Adam and Eve all the way forward. In Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent, rebelled against God, and led the whole human race into a life of rebellion. And then we see all the way through to the book of Revelation, Satan is compared as a serpent in the book of Revelation, that great dragon of old, and he's cast down out of heaven. And so when Jesus is comparing himself to this serpent on a pole, he's pointing to the fact that, hey, look, I was made a curse for you on the cross. I was made sin for you. I took that venom for you so that you could be set free, so that you could be cleansed and you could be healed. We all need to receive his mercy. But one of the major things that keeps us away from receiving that mercy is pride. You see, there were several Israelites who probably died because they thought there'd be another way for them to be healed. They thought, how stupid is this? Are you telling me, Moses, if I look at a a statue of a snake on a pole that somehow I'll be healed of the snake bite. And so in their pride, maybe they tried spending hours praying, or maybe they tried spending their last few hours on earth studying the Torah, or maybe they went and sought the doctors instead of listening to Moses, and then they died of that snake poisoning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's a foolish message, but even a child can receive it. A little child can look to the Lord Jesus this morning and be instantly saved and brought into his kingdom. Can have all of their sins forgiven. Can have the curse removed. 
It's good news for everyone. The only way that anyone is ever going to be saved is if they come to God. They come to the foot of the cross empty-handed. They come without trying to bring up their good works, trying to bargain with God, give enough money to the church. None of those things are going to save you. None of those things are going to be good enough. But if you simply humble yourself and admit you've done wrong and look to the cross, look to the serpent on the pole, in our case, look to the Lord Jesus Christ who has made a curse for us, who has made sin for us so that we could be forgiven and redeemed. You'll be cleansed. You'll be brought into the kingdom of God. And God will become your father. This is good news. And that's how I want to finish it on good news. So I'm just going to finish in prayer before I hand back over to Pastor Darren. Father in heaven, I just thank you that you're a mighty God. You're the creator of the heavens and the earth. Lord Jesus, you said all authority has been given to you in heaven and on earth. We know that on the cross you bore our sin in your body. We thank you, Lord, that whoever believes in you would not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you for making provision for us, Lord. Thank you that even though we're weak, Lord, you are our strength. You are our savior and our deliverer. And we praise you in your mighty name. Amen. Thank you, Josh. You know, I heard the story one time of uh, a little boy who went fishing. And uh, he uh, got all excited. He got out there. He dug up what he thought were little worms. He put them in a little tin. And he went down to start fishing. And he'd, uh, he got his uh, fishing line and he... He threaded this little thing, it sort of nipped his finger, didn't worry about that. He threw it in and he caught a fish. He said, this is good bait. And he kept going, he was catching fish after fish after fish. Well, after a while, the town sheriff came along and he said, uh, he saw the little boy carrying all these fish back. He said, where have you been? He said, down at the river, sir. He said, well, you've got a huge haul of fish. What did you use for bait? He said, these. And he opened up the tin and the sheriff froze. He said to the little boy, get in the car straight away. He rushed him to hospital. But the little boy died because they weren't little worms. They were little baby rattlesnakes. And that's what it's like. He was having a great time. He was fishing. He was catching fish. But all that time, this poison was going through his veins constantly. And there's not a single one of us here that does not have that poison in our veins before we come to Jesus Christ. So I want to lead you in a prayer. If you've never asked Jesus into your life, this is a great time to do it. Because every single one of us has that poison in our veins. And it's only looking to the Lord Jesus that can heal us of that poison and give us eternal life. Only Him. It's only by His grace that we are saved. It's not anything we do. It's not anything we have. It's not anything we give. It's just saying, Lord, and falling upon His mercy and asking the Lord into our life. So let's just bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just speak to our hearts. Some of us here may have never asked you into, into our life. This is a great day to do it. Some of us here have done that before, but we've drifted away from, from you. We've got distant from you. This is a great moment to come back and to look to you for the healing of that poison of sin running through our veins. If you've never asked Jesus into your life, pray this with me. Say this. Say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I've sinned. Forgive me of my sin, Lord Jesus. I ask you into my life as my Lord and my Savior. Forgive me and give me eternal life. If you've 
Ask the Lord in before, but you've drifted away. If you're not close to him now, we need to come back into fellowship with the Lord Jesus right now. We need to know that when we look to him, that we can be healed. We, we can go out and we can get bitten again and again and again, and we do that, and sin keeps cropping up in our life time after time after time. But we must continually come back to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, forgive me. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to purify us. Whatever that sin may be, he can purify us. So if you've drifted far from the Lord or if you've found it tough and, and, and just dry out there, I want to invite you right now to, to just recommit your life to him, to just get it right with him again, to look to Jesus on the cross. And to his incredible, amazing grace and love and mercy that's there for you. Just say this with me, church. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. But right now, Lord Jesus, I recommit my life to you afresh. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Heal me of this poison of sin. I want to live for you totally today. If you prayed either of those prayers, just as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, just raise your hand up very quickly where you are. I'm not bringing you forward today. We don't have enough room, but this is between you and God. But I know many of you have prayed that. There are many who need to hear this. Jesus is in the business of forgiving sin, and he loves you, and he laid his life down for you. Let's stand together.